very much indeed. Please keep your Bibles open and uh, the New Style Service card has an outline on the back and I think you'll find it helpful to follow along with that as we work through the passage. Let's ask for God's help, uh, God to speak to us and encourage us in his word. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you do speak to us. That we thank you that you have caused your word to be written. That thank you for the huge privilege of being able to tell it and listen to it. And we pray that as your word is opened, that our hearts may be warmed with a renewed awareness of your love. That our minds might be filled with your truth and our lives might be equipped to serve and glorify your name. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, uh, last week we began this new series in the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm sure that uh, if you are with us or not, you know that this great sermon begins with a whole series of statements, starting with the words, Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And uh, last week I tried to point out that this is a very good description uh, of what happens to a person when they get converted. Jesus says that the person who is suddenly aware of their spiritual poverty is a blessed person, because then they might be led to mourn or grieve for their sin. Uh, They have a meek uh, or a humble estimate of themselves, And they want to be righteous before God. They want to be in right relationship with God. Now, can I say this morning that all of that is a miracle? That simply does not happen to the average person in Cape Town. But if it's happened to you, if you've been brought to see your spiritual poverty, and you've been brought to the place where you grieve or you mourn over your sin and you want forgiveness to get right with God, you are in a very blessed position. Because it's a sign, you see, that God has been at work in you. Uh, To do what I think so many people in the world seem to miss, which is to be brought low in order that God can raise you very high indeed and make you into a new person and give you a wonderful future. Now, friends, that is what Jesus is talking about at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins by telling you how God makes a kingdom person before Jesus tells us how to live as a kingdom person. So, uh, if God wants a fish to be a fish, he makes it a fish. If God wants a bird to be a bird... He makes it into a bird. And in exactly the same way, if God wants a person to live the Christian life, he makes him a Christian. He gives him new life. So verses 3 to 12 that we looked at last week are a description of God transforming a person, causing them to feel their spiritual poverty, to mourn, to seek forgiveness, to seek righteousness, and become completely new. Now, I I say all that because when people read Matthew 5, verses 3 to 12, not everybody gets it. 
Um, But you see, there's no point in saying to somebody, live the Sermon on the Mount. Because you see, unless God gives them that new life, they simply can't do it. Now, of course, the marks of those blessings that we looked at last week continue with us throughout our Christian lives. Uh, We continue to be those who feel our spiritual poverty. Uh, We continue to be those who mourn and repent. And God willing, we continue to be people who are meek or humble and seek to live a godly life. But friends, I want you to notice the sequence There must be conversion before there is discipleship. Now that, you see, is why some people don't live the Christian life very well. More often than not, it's because they never got the Christian life in the first place. They were never actually, truly converted. Uh, A famous old pastor called George Duncan was at one point looking after a missionary who'd returned from the mission field and he was feeling really rather discouraged and demoralised. And uh, George Duncan said, the more I spoke to this person who was trying to live the Christian life, the more I realised that he didn't actually have the Christian life. He'd never actually been converted. I think it's important to say that again up front. I know we said it last week. This morning we're looking at the next section of Jesus' teaching under three headings. Firstly, in verses 3 to 16, Jesus talks about new people. Then in verses 17 to 20, he talks about new hearts. And then lastly, in verses 21 to 26, he describes some new standards. Now won't you please notice what Jesus says about new people. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 13, have a look at it with me, please. Verse 13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Notice he does not say, I want you to try and be the salt of the earth. No, he says, you are the salt of the earth. I have caused you to become the salt of the earth. So there's the transformation. And then Jesus basically says to them, I'm not asking you to be what you're not. I'm asking you to be what you are. So imagine Jesus uh, coming into St Barnabas this morning and pulling up a chair next to you and whispering in your ear, I've made you brand new and therefore you can live the Christian life. That's basically what Jesus is saying here. And he uses three illustrations to make the point. He says you are salt, he says you are light, and he says you are a city on a hill. Now what on earth does Jesus mean by these three images? Salt, light, city on a hill. I mean, were the disciples supposed to be thinking, well I wonder what on earth the Old Testament says about salt? What does the Old Testament say about light? What does the Old Testament say about cities? Or uh, perhaps alternatively, were they supposed to be thinking, well, what is the purpose of salt? Is it for this? Is it for that? Is it for something else? Actually, it's none of those things. The disciples were not supposed to be asking any of those questions. Because the meaning is obvious. The point about salt, light, and a city on a hill 
is that they are all unmissable. You cannot miss them. So think about it with me. Do you know the difference between peanuts and salted peanuts? Well, of course you do. Salt on your food, you can't miss it. Salt in your coffee, you can't miss it. Uh, Light in a dark place, it's unmissable. A city on top of a hill, on top of Table Mountain, you can't miss it. These are three unmistakable, unmissable things. And therefore, I want to suggest that Jesus is saying, you are in my people, you are my people, you're in the world, but if I can put it like this, you are meant to be in the world's face, absolutely unmissable. Now, I think this is a very great challenge, you see, because Christ is calling upon his people to be distinctive. And you'll notice that he goes on in the passage to talk about the absurdity of not being distinctive. Uh, So see what he says in verse 13. He says, what's going on if salt loses its taste? Now, I suppose we could have a long discussion in home groups this week uh, about whether sodium chloride can actually be broken down so that salt loses its taste. Uh, We're not going to do that. I was absolutely hopeless at chemistry at school and I have no idea what the answer is. But it doesn't matter. Because it's not the point. Because what Jesus is saying is, I've made you new. How could you not be distinctive? And you've got the same thing in verse 14. I mean, it is extremely hard, isn't it, to hide a city on a hill. And it is equally hard to hide a real Christian. Now, you might be the sort of Christian who goes to work and nobody actually knows you're a Christian. I want to say that's a pity. And you need to think of a wise way to raise the flag to indicate to the people around you that you are a Christian. Because, you see, that's going to help you to live more carefully. Don't be a secret disciple. Somebody has said that secret discipleship is impossible because either the secrecy will kill your discipleship or the discipleship will kill your secrecy. And Jesus says you can't have a city on a hill that nobody notices. And then in verse 15, Jesus says, why would you light a lamp and then cover it up? Why would the same person light the lamp and then bury the lamp, put a towel over it or something? Don't do that. Don't have a double purpose. God doesn't have a double purpose. He's got one purpose, which is that we would be new and distinctive. Now, if you think about the Bible story. Think about how God made Israel to be a light to the nations, but in the end they became as dark as the nations. Now that's a tragedy. And you see, if the church is as dark as the nations, it's a sadness. And Jesus Christ says to his disciples, I've made you salt, light, and city on a hill. It's challenging very challenging. 
Can I say it's also wonderfully comforting? Because Jesus is not asking us to fly to the moon. He's not asking us to be superhuman. He's simply stating the importance of being what we've been made to be. So if you like, he's not putting a Springbok rugby jersey on us and saying, go and win the Rugby World Cup. He's not doing that. And he's not pushing us in front of a piano and saying, go and play like Beethoven. He's not doing that. He's saying, I'm giving you, I've given you brand new life and I want you to go and live it. Now I wonder if you notice there are no commands in these opening verses. There's no command from Jesus to be successful. He's simply coming alongside you and me and saying, Simon, I've made you into a new person and I want you to be that new person. Let your light shine. I also want you to notice, please, and this was interesting to me this week, I haven't seen this before, please notice the number of pictures that Jesus uses. This is really important. Because there are three pictures, not two. There is salt, there is light, city on a hill. Now I say this because for some reason in the last 30 or so years, the phrase salt and light has been hijacked by lots of churches and lots of Christians. And uh, they forget that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus did not talk about salt and light only. He spoke about salt, light and city on a hill. And you see, Jesus regularly teaches in threesomes. This was fascinating to me. Just look over to chapter 6. Are you all looking at chapter 6? Verse 2. Notice this. Jesus talks in verse 2 about when you give. Then in verse 5, Jesus talks about when you pray. And then verse 14, he talks about when you fast. When you give, when you pray, when you fast. Three examples of normal Christian practice. Now look over at chapter 7 and verse 13. Chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus says there are two roads, broad, narrow. Look at verse 17, chapter 7. Jesus says there are two trees, good, bad. Then look at verse 24 and following. Jesus says there are two foundations, rock, sand. Jesus regularly teaches in threesomes. Now why is this so terribly important? Because if you miss that there are three illustrations in our passage this morning, salt, light, city on a hill, what you're going to do is you're going to invent a contrast between salt and light. And so over the years, many Christians, you see, have said that salt means social action, and light means evangelism. But can I say, dear friends, there is no evidence in the Bible that Jesus uses salt to talk about social action, and there is no evidence in the Bible that Jesus uses light as a way of talking about evangelism. No. Jesus is talking here about three unmissable things. Salt, light, city on a hill. 
But you see, back in the 1970s and the 1980s, the church baptised this idea that salt means social action and light means evangelism. People were told to go and do those things and the church got thoroughly confused. But if we read this passage carefully in its context, we see quite clearly that salt, light and city on a hill are three ways of talking about the same thing. Something that is absolutely unmissable. Let me give you an example of what this could look like in practice. Uh, Some of you will have heard of the Amish community in Pennsylvania. In uh, 2006, a gunman went into one of the classrooms in that community, randomly shooting all the children aged between 7 and 13. He shot 10 of them, killing 5, and then he killed himself. Within just a few hours of that taking place, the Amish community were around at the home of the gunman, comforting his widow and children in the sadness of what had happened. And at the funeral for that gunman, at least half the people there were from the Amish community. What is absolutely fascinating about this is that the world found that completely impossible to cope with. Uh, So that uh, when they made a film of that event, they invented somebody, um, a lady actually, within the Amish community, who became bitter and angry and gave up her faith. That didn't happen. Didn't happen. Totally untrue. But you see, the world couldn't actually cope with the idea that the Amish community could be so different and be so distinctive. So the film uh, had to portray them as being normal, just like us. But Jesus says quite clearly, I've made you new and I want you to live like you are new. Good, well, the second section then, in verses 17 to 20... I've called new hearts. Now, I want to tread very carefully here because Professor Don Carson says this is actually one of the most difficult sections in the whole of the New Testament. And if Don Carson says it, it must be true. No doubt we could have several sermons on it. We're not going to do that. I just want us to try and get one big idea out of these verses. So please come with me to verse 17. Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. So right at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus announces that his kingdom does not involve rejecting Old Testament law. No, he's going to fulfil the Old Testament law. He's basically saying, don't think that just because the king has come, that God's Old Testament law is past its sell-by date. Because what's going to happen is that the law of God is going to enter the human heart and it's going to produce more obedience than ever before. Now, I think it's rather hard to illustrate this. But uh, imagine with me for a moment um, a really, really bad babysitter. Uh, I hope this isn't you. If it is, please accept my apologies. 
But just think about a truly terrible babysitter. The law says to the babysitter, look after the kids. But uh, the babysitter thinks, well, I've got no love for these kids. And as soon as the parent has gone out, this is a marvellous opportunity for me to raid the fridge, ring my friends, use the Wi-Fi, watch television, explore the house. Now think, by contrast, of a really terrific babysitter, a really good one. The law says, look after the kids, same law. And the babysitter thinks, I'm going to love those children. I will be patient and kind. And not only that, I'm not going to be stealing anything from the house. And if there's a bit of tidying up that needs to be done, or perhaps a little bit of ironing that needs to be done, I'll do that too. Now you see, what's happening in each of those cases is that the heart is driving the behaviour. The law's the same. But the heart drives the behaviour. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's going to cause the law to enter the hearts of his people. That is, the hearts of all true Christians. The people in verses 3 to 12 that we looked at last week. How does that happen? Well, first... Jesus comes into the world as the object to which the Old Testament law was pointing right from the beginning. The law and the prophets were always pointing to Jesus. Well then, Jesus comes into the world and he actually lives the law. He actually lives it out. He's not a Pharisee, but he lives the law deeply and perfectly. And then Jesus dies to save those people who have not kept the law. And the one who deserves to be spared all the trouble and to be rewarded for his godliness actually takes onto himself the deepest trouble. And all the beatings that should come upon us for our disobedience, they fall on him. That's what happens at the cross. And uh, as a result, of course, Jesus holds out to you and me the reward that he deserves. And when we go to him for forgiveness and mercy and help, we receive new life, which moves into the heart so that the law of God is planted deep in the heart and it begins to work itself out in my life. And the Spirit, listen to this, leads us into greater obedience than any legalist could ever possibly dream of. Not less obedience, more obedience. And that's why you see in chapter 5 and verse 20, uh, Jesus can say that your obedience is going to be surpassing or exceeding the obedience of the Pharisees. And they were famous, world famous, for being obedient you know, I'm so grateful that uh, Jesus saved me all of those years ago because if Jesus had not saved me, I would be a tremendous lawbreaker. Uh, I know I would be a great lawbreaker. I mean, why wouldn't I be? Because without Jesus, I'd be thinking, look, you've only got one life. Uh, you may as well get everything you can while you're here. And I would break every single law that I could get away with, and so would you. 
But you see, because Jesus Christ has intervened in my life and forgiven me and changed me, and he's put his Holy Spirit into my heart, I must think differently. That's the point. Now let's clarify. And obviously we don't have to obey those aspects of Old Testament law that had to do with Israel as a nation. For example, Numbers chapter 31 instructs Israel how to divide the plunder after a battle. Well, I don't have to worry about that. That's not written directly to me. It is inspired. There are useful things that you and I can learn from that. But it doesn't apply directly to us this morning as it did to Israel then. Yes, we'll all understand that. And we don't have to worry about the Old Testament laws that dealt with the sacrificial system. Example, uh, Numbers chapter 9 says that Israel were to celebrate the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. We don't have to put the Passover into the St. Barnabas church calendar. We are deeply thankful that Jesus fulfilled the Passover. And we give thanks that if Jesus hadn't come, we would have to obey all of the Old Testament laws relating to the sacrificial system if we want to get right with God. But we don't have to, because Jesus has come. So in the end, the way that Jesus fulfills the law in his life and death and resurrection, and the way that Jesus fulfills the law by putting his Holy Spirit into his people, means that nothing in the Old Testament law gets rejected. Everything gets brought through to completion, and you and I are changed. Okay? One writer has a rather uh, amusing illustration of this. He says, if you go to a zoo and uh, you open up your Bible to Isaiah chapter 11, which says that the calf and the lion should lie down together. And there you are in the zoo. And you push a calf and a lion into the same cage. You can read Isaiah 11 as many times as you like. And the lion will eat the calf every time. Because, you see, in order for Isaiah chapter 11 to happen, the lion and the calf have got to be made new. And, of course, there is going to be a time in the new creation when the lion and the calf really will lie down together. But, you see, just giving them the law, just giving them the text, isn't going to make them new. God must give us a new heart. Are you with me so far? Jesus is talking about new people. He's talking about new hearts. Thirdly, he's talking about new standards. Now, in verses 21 to 26, uh, here's a very good example of Jesus taking just one commandment to teach a bigger truth. Here he picks on number six, which says, do not murder. And uh, Jesus says, you were told, do not murder. But I tell you that even anger is breaking the commandment. Now what Jesus is doing here is he's exposing the human heart. He's basically saying to his disciples, 
You know, I know you've heard the literal command, don't kill. But I'm telling you that the grace which is operating in your heart and the Holy Spirit who is going to work in your heart is going to work on your anger. And so you see, if anybody reads the commandment and says, well, number six, that's the breeze, Uh, I haven't murdered anybody, so I should be fine. You need to understand, says Jesus, that the seeds of murder are anger. And anger is illegal, and anger is punishable. And that's why Jesus says in verse 22, If you get angry with your brother or sister, you'll get judgment. If you say something abusive, and Jesus gives the example of that Aramaic word, raka, well, you could get taken to the council. But, says Jesus, if you call your brother or sister a fool, it'll take you to hell. Oh, by the way, won't you please notice in verse 22 that Jesus uses another group of three examples. Isn't that interesting? Three examples to teach the same point. Are you looking at verse 22? Anyone who is angry, there's the first one. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, there's the second one. Anyone who says, you you fool, there's the third one. Three examples to teach the same point. But you see, the point is, there is no use us pretending that we've kept the commandments, because we haven't. And there's no point in us dismissing what Jesus says here because he's simply revealing the truth, which is that your heart and mine is a cesspit. And beneath the pleasant exterior that we all project, all of us need his help. All of us need his forgiveness. All of us need his Holy Spirit. Because, you see, Jesus is not looking for Pharisees. So I do hope you don't think that when we come to church we're pretending that we're great. I hope you know that when we come to church we are people who are so grateful to Jesus because we've begun to see just a tiny little bit of what we're really like. And we're just so grateful for the Holy Spirit who's come into our lives to begin to transform us. So Jesus is not looking for Pharisees. Jesus is looking for people who wake up to themselves and who realise that the seeds of murder, yes, murder, are in their own hearts and who realise that the anger in their hearts could, under certain circumstances, could erupt like a volcano Remember that volcano that erupted near New Zealand just before Christmas? Could erupt like a volcano into murder. And all of that, the whole lot, makes us unfit for fellowship with God. Now you might be thinking at this moment, well hang on a minute. Aren't you exaggerating here? I mean, didn't Jesus get angry? Didn't Jesus tick people off? Well, the answer is that, of course, he did. But you see, when Jesus got angry, it was never self-centred. It was never about his ego. Jesus got angry with sin. He got angry with the things that God gets angry about. 
And yes, there are times when we should be angry about something and that anger won't be sin. That's why there's a place in the New Testament where it says, in your anger, do not sin. From time to time, it is right to be angry. Not as often as we might think. But yes, there is a kind of anger that is not sinful. And uh, there are things we should be angry at because they're wrong, we shouldn't be happy about them. But you see, it's when we tip over into selfish anger that we sin. And Jesus never did that. So Jesus is saying here that keeping God's will is not a superficial checklist. It is not saying, um, well, I haven't killed anyone, so basically I'm okay. No, it's recognising that I need the transforming power of Christ to reach into my anger, to reach into the resentment and the annoyance that lurks in my heart. And I need his forgiveness, but I also need the Spirit's help to be loving and to be patient and to be kind. And Jesus, you'll notice, gives two tests for this. This is all connected, these aren't random paragraphs. He says in verse 23, have a look at it, if you're about to come to church and you remember that you've left somebody hurt, well, fix that up first because it would be better if you can do it, you can't always do it, but it would be better if you can do it to fix up that relationship rather than come to church and pretend that all is well. So the the positive effect of the Spirit of God is that you find that you want to be in good fellowship horizontally with your brothers and sisters and not just talk about it piously and vertically with God. And then he gives another illustration. He says if you're heading to court, somebody's taking you to court and perhaps it's a reasonable case, Uh, fix up what you can before you end up in jail. It's better for you to seek and find peace than end up in a prison cell. Well, that's not going to actually happen to most of us. But what's the point of the illustration? The point of the illustration is that reconciliation is an urgent thing. That's the point. There's an urgency about getting right with our brothers and sisters. And can you see, dear friends, that this is the opposite of Pharisaism? No, this is the Christian saying, how good can my relationships be? What can I put right? What can I heal? And so I want to finish this morning by saying that if we are uh, Matthew 5 verses 3 to 12 people, if we are kingdom people, If we are people who've been made new by grace, what does that look like tomorrow morning? What does that look like Monday to Saturday this week? Will it be your clothing? Will it be your conversation? Jesus is saying it's something far more profound. And you'll find it in verse 16, where Jesus says that a real Christian is somebody who points other people to God. You see verse 16? Marvellous memory verse. Let your light shine before men. Why? 
that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now there are lots of ways of doing that. Uh, But the life that we live as Christian people is to help other people seek God. And I think that's something for us to be praying about and working towards this, this coming week. And can I say that it is a very, very great pity if the church thinks that it's going to get people to sit up and take notice if it becomes more like the world. It's a great sadness when the church thinks, and many churches sadly do, if we're going to impress the world, let's be like the world. Let's tick all the immoral boxes to keep the world happy. Let's be bland, let's be harmless, make sure nobody gets upset. Let's say that everything the world wants is absolutely fine. Can I say the world actually is not impressed with that? When it sees the church doing that, do you know what it does? It mocks us. We're meant to be unmissable. And uh, if our hearts are new, so that God's law is in our hearts, where does obedience fit? into the Christian life. I wonder whether obedience is actually one of the forgotten aspects of the Christian life today in the West. I think so much of Christianity today talks about whether God can be trusted, whether God is going to come through for good old me, but actually in the New Testament a great deal of the Christian life is obedience, pure and simple. And what is obedience? Obedience is living out the law of God by the grace of God. That's what obedience is. And if our standards are new, uh, do you think this morning that you're going forwards or backwards as a Christian? I don't know whether we see a great deal of spiritual heat in Christians in the West today. I think in the West, the idea of living sacrificially for Christ I think that's almost unheard of. And instead, the mindset of many Christians in the West is, you know, why should I miss out on anything when I can have everything and still turn up on Sunday? Jesus says, those who claim to be disciples but don't crucify their sin, and uh, I mean ungodliness, stuff you shouldn't be looking at, language you shouldn't be using, relationship behaviour that takes place in private that is displeasing to God, where there is no crucifying of sin, you're not actually getting the best of both worlds. You may have convinced yourself you are, but you're not getting the best of both worlds. What you're actually doing is you're raising a really, really big question, which is, have I ever really entered the kingdom? Because Jesus says quite plainly, the kingdom has come and those he brings into the kingdom he makes into new people and he gives them new life and that new life goes deeper and wider and higher and further than anything the world could ever possibly invent. And that, you see, dear brothers and sisters, is why we are so thankful for Jesus our Saviour and so thankful for the Holy Spirit our transformer. Let's pray.
Father, we are just so thankful for you sending your Son into the world, for opening the kingdom to people as weak as us. We thank you for the way in which Jesus has obeyed your holy law perfectly, died for us, sent his Spirit, and how he changes the believer. We pray that you would hear us as we look to you to do a deep work in each one of us, a deep and profound and joyful and fruitful and useful work, and that as a result you would be praised as people give glory to you, that people would be helped to believe, that other believers would be strengthened and edified, and that we ourselves would be at peace as we give thanks to you, our Saviour and our Transformer.